So today we're kicking off a brand new series called David. The story we're looking at takes place, and the story we'll look at over the, you know, the next couple of weeks takes place about the 11th century B.C., and you probably know a little bit about David, and, and maybe if you've grown up in church, you've heard all sorts of stories about David, and David was a lot of things. You know, he starts out, we pick up the story when he's a, when he's a young boy, and he ends up being a king, but ultimately, at least as it pertains to what we're talking about today, David lived in a, in a very, very violent time. In fact, it's pretty impossible for you and I to get our minds around the time that David lived in especially when it came specifically to ancient warfare. What we do with that is what we tend to do, and we can't help it, but we tend to romanticize it. We tend to glamorize it. We tend to fictionalize it and even sanitize it. And Hollywood's helped us out a tremendous amount with, with movies like Braveheart and Gladiator and others. In fact, I'm just curious. You know, you think about those couple movies and you think about Braveheart. How many here, show of hands, would say, you know, Braveheart's in probably your top 10 of all time movies, right? Raise your hand. You know, a few of you, okay. What about Gladiator, top 20 movies of all time, okay? A bunch of you, like, right? We, we love those movies, but the reality is the Hollywood version just wasn't reality. In modern warfare, we, we tend to kill from a distance, but in ancient warfare, everything was at arm's length. You actually looked into the eyes of your component, you or your opponent. You smelled their breath and you knew what they had to drink and you knew what they had to eat. You were so close that you could see some things. You could see the fear in their eyes. You could even see the terror in their eyes or perhaps with some even the savagery. Maybe you could look into the eyes of some and you could see that glazed look of someone who drank enough so that they could whip up the courage to be able to yell and to scream and to try to kill you. One of the worst things that you could see in another person's eyes and face was calmness. Why? Well, that meant you were looking into the eyes of a professional killer, a veteran. And if that was what was before you, the odds of you walking away alive and unscathed were pretty low. If some of the blood that was on you was yours and not just the enemy, you would do your best to stop the bleeding. But if you could stop the bleeding, chances are you would probably eventually die from some sort of infection. Ancient warfare was anything but glamorous. It was harsh. It was brutal. It was savage. How's that for an introduction on a Mother's Day? But that's the context with which the story we look at today. And with that in mind, I want to look at an ancient battle in 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. And we're going to pick up in verse 1. And it says this. It says, The Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. Now look at verse 3. The Philistines occupied one hill, the Israelites another, with a valley between them. And I'll bet you know this story to some degree. And it says this, a champion named who? A champion named? Goliath, right? Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span, which meant he was nine and a half feet tall. 
His, verse 7, his spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels, which is about 15 pounds. In other words, Goliath was a killing machine, and he used his six-foot-long spear with its 15-pound iron tip to stab his enemies to death. So look at verse 8. So Goliath stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Okay, who's Saul? Saul was the king of Israel. He was the first king of Israel. He goes on, he says, Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we'll become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and you will serve us. Verse 10, Then the Philistine said, This day... I defy the armies of, God, of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. But notice verse 11 on hearing this. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul, remember King Saul, and all the Israelites were dismayed and they were terrified. So you got the picture? Day after day, Goliath taunts the army of Israel. The Bible says that he does this for a month and and, and Goliath is a champion of the Philistines, and Israel needed a champion themselves. And so they looked to their king, their king Saul. Why did they look to Saul? Well, they looked to him because he was their king, but they also looked to him because he was the tallest man in Israel. And so you have this giant who's, who's on the other side, and the Israelites are looking on their side and saying, who's our tallest man? We want our tallest against their tallest and, and so what they had done by, by turning to Saul and trusting in Saul, they were placing their hope in their giant, so to speak, waiting for him, by the way, to come out of his tent and have the courage to fight the giant Goliath. And that's where our story begins to intersect with the story of the Old Testament. Because when I say our story, here's what's true of you and here's what's true of me. We place our hope in what we depend on. We place our hope in what we depend on. And we place our hope in who we depend on. And when that person that we've placed our hope in, when they disappoint us, oftentimes, you know, the measure of our hope that we had in them, that becomes the measure of our disdain. That becomes the measure of our anger, and certainly it becomes the measure of our disappointment in them when they don't come through for us. This is why you and I have the potential to resent our parents more than anyone else, right? I mean, think about it for a moment. Your hope was, and maybe perhaps still is for some, was in them, right? Growing up, your hope was in your parents. You never placed your hope in the, you know, in the neighbors across the street, did you? You know, you placed your hope in mom and dad, which is why for some, a day like today, Mother's Day, it's why it's a little bit painful. You depended on your mom, but she lets you down big time. And so today's brutal for you because you watch others who celebrate their mom who was so loving and so sacrificial, but that wasn't your experience. But again, it's the nature of whatever we hope and whatever we trust in, whatever we place our hope in, that's who we trust. That's who we depend on. And on our story, the soldiers had put their hope in their giant, King Saul, who's conspicuously missing. And his credibility is slipping away each day as he did not respond to the giant Goliath. And as Saul's credibility continued to decrease, 
so did the army's hope as well. And by the time we get to this part of the story, the army's hope had been lost. Now, something to keep in mind as we go through this story, the situation, this situation that we're looking at, this story between the armies of God and the armies of the Philistines, it really illustrated for us the fact that God never wanted Israel to have a king in the first place. God wanted to be the king for Israel because God knew that wherever you place your trust, that is where you place your hope. And God wanted Israel to put their hope in him. So much so that about 400 years prior to this event that we're looking at this morning, God actually established Israel as a theocracy. What's a theocracy? Well, basically what it was is it meant that God set up this nation and God set up the laws for the nation and then he had those laws administered by judges. In other words, God would be the king and they would follow the laws that God had set up and the judges would then you know, execute or administer those laws. But a few years before our story with Goliath, the people complained to their leading authority about God's plan. They didn't like it so much, so they complained to the prophet named Samuel. And maybe you know this story, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1, and it tells us this. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's judges. Verse 3, but his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and they perverted judges. In other, uh, in other words, they were perverted justice. They were corrupt. They were corrupt, and yet they were to be the judges who were supposed to faithfully administer God's law, but they were corrupt. First Samuel chapter 8, verse 4, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You're old. Okay, you're old. Your time's come up. And your sons do not follow your ways, so appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. They come to Samuel, they're like, hey, listen, all the cool nations, they have a king. Man, and we want a king, and, and we want to be cool like them, and they have a king, and we need to put our hope and trust in someone, and so we need that king. And here's what they forgot, and here's what so complicates the story of the Old Testament, and actually what so complicates even our lives personally, and the lives of the church in general as a whole. God established Israel for a very specific purpose. And that purpose went way beyond Israel itself. You know, some of you might know the story. Do you know the story? It goes back to a guy named Abraham, hundreds of years prior. And God went to Abraham and told Abraham, I am going to uh, establish you as a nation. And your descendants are going to be as numerous as, you know, the sand, sand in, the, in the oceans and the stars in the sky. And I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless your descendants and you and your descendants in turn are going to bless the world. I'm going to use you to be a blessing and your descendants and your nation to be a blessing to the entire world. God had a very specific purpose and a specific agenda for Israel. You see, God wanted Israel to be special. God wanted Israel to be different. God wanted Israel to be set apart. So that in their holiness and in their success and in their prosperity and in all the good that God would bring to Israel and all the good that would happen to Israel, all the surrounding nations, they'd look at Israel and see the, how they were incredibly blessed and they'd be like, man, who is your God? And they'd have to draw that conclusion. Why? Because in God's plan, they didn't have a king. And if they don't have a king, the nations would be forced to look and, and say, oh my goodness, who's in charge? 
Who is this God, this unique God that's protecting the borders of your land and that causes your crops to grow and that's giving you prosperity and long lives? Who is this God? You see, through the nation of Israel, God's plan was to bless the whole world. And you need to understand, even for us today, isn't that God's plan for us as Jesus followers? God wants to use us to be the blessing to share the good news with the world, to go make disciples. Didn't Jesus say, I want you to be salt and I want you to be light? The Israelites, they didn't want to have anything to do with God's plan. They wanted something else and someone else. So the story continues, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 6. When they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Saul. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all the people that the, all, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Samuel, God's saying the fact that, 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 you, that they want to appoint a king, listen, they're not rejecting you. They're not rejecting your leadership. They're not rejecting your wisdom. They're rejecting me as their king. Verse 9. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. In other words, this is going to happen. You need to let the people know. It's not going to be as easy as you think it is. There's going to be some challenges that come along with you having a king. For example, one of the things he's going to do is he's going to tax you. And he's going to take a percentage of your crops and a percentage of your herds. He's going to take your men and, and force them into being in the army. He's going to take the women and force, him to, force them to serve him as the king. Yet in spite of all the warnings, the people insisted, we want a king, we want a king. In other words, we want our hope in someone other than God. And it's the, it's the nation of Israel's insistence on a king that set the very stage for the most detailed narrative account in all of ancient Israel. It set the stage for the story of David, Israel's greatest king. Now, why was he Israel's greatest king? Well, it's certainly not because he was a perfect man or a perfect king. He wasn't. We'll look into that in the upcoming weeks. He was Israel's greatest king because, as we will see, there was something inside of David that was hesitant a little bit, in a good way, that was reluctant. There was something in so inside of him that was extraordinarily confident, which we'll talk about in a few moments. And there was something inside of him that was incredibly humble as well. And with David, unlike the average king or typical king that he would be one day, David actually loved the law of God. That wasn't normal for kings, was it? Kings don't typically love, you know, the laws. The kings think they are the law, right? And if they don't like a law, uh, uh, there's a law maybe that they violate or, or, or do something against or whatever the case may be. If they don't like that law, what do they do with the law? They change it, right? All right, forget this, we'll change it. So that it aligns with the way I want to live. And yet throughout David's reign, we discover something that he actually loved God's law, even when that law ends up condemning him. And David, he doesn't change the law. He doesn't adjust the law. He humbled himself before Almighty God. 
And he humbled himself by allowing himself to be broken over God's law. Why? Because he had a conviction. And it's a conviction I would encourage you to pursue. I would encourage you to have. It's an important point for us to grab a hold of this morning. He had the conviction that God is the one who provided the law. That is God who gave the law. What's your conviction about God's word? Who's it from? It's God's word. And the Bible tells us about itself. It says that it is living and active. Man, and it can cut down to the depths of our soul and speak to us. Do you have that conviction? David had that conviction. And it's that conviction that the law is God's law. The word of God is truly from God. It's that conviction that provided him tremendous clarity as a king. Clarity to know, for example, that even though he was a king, he was not the king. Clarity for him to know that because he was a king and not the king, that meant something. It meant he had limited authority. He had limited power. It provided him clarity to know that in spite of his popularity, in spite of his talent, in spite of his power, in in spite of his success, He had the conviction that God gave the law and he loved the law. So David was not a person who was confused. That's not always the case for us, is it? The the truth is success tends to confuse the best of us. Success in our lives tends to confuse some things for us. You might be a businessman or woman. You might be a salesperson. And your success can confuse you. A little bit of sales success, a little bit of family success, a little bit of parenting success. Maybe you have some financial success or academic success or intelligence success or success in some hobby or talent. And the next thing you know, we're sitting on the throne of our own lives. In that success, we tend to elevate our own authority and our own kingship over the one who's supposed to be the king in our lives. And when we sit on the throne of our lives, and please don't miss this, whether we know it or not, our hope is in ourselves. When we sit on the throne of our lives, our hope is in ourselves because we place our hope in what we depend on the most. David, the king of Israel, he didn't make that mistake. He knew where to place his hope. In fact, we're going to catch a glimpse of that perspective back when he was just a shepherd boy and he's a shepherd boy who begins to enter into the story we're talking about today let's read this verse again together first samuel chapter 17 first samuel 17 verse 11 on hearing the philistines words saul and all the israelites were dismayed and they were what what does it say they were they were dismayed and they were they were terrified You see, in the midst of this battle where the king, who's supposed to be the giant who the people have placed their hope and trust in against this other giant, they they were dismayed and they were terrified by the nine and a half foot giant. And in the midst of that, teenage David shows up to bring a care package from home for his brothers who are in the army. And like any curious teenager, he wants to check out what's going on. And when he gets close, he hears Goliath's taunts. He hears Goliath's speech. He sees the giant. 
And as he hears the taunts and hears the speech, the speech that happens twice a day for over a month, the speech that says, bring me somebody to fight me. Let's fight one-on-one, mano-a-mano, winner takes all. But David, instead of being dismayed or terrified like Saul and the army, instead David was offended. He goes on, jump down to verse 26, 1 Samuel 17, verse 26. David asked the man standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Don't you love the perspective? So different. Almost the assumption that he has, what's going to be done for the man who will kill this Philistine and who will remove this disgrace from Israel? Totally different way of seeing it. The army, King Saul, what did they see? They saw a nine and a half foot giant before him, a killing machine, a war veteran. What they saw was their king, King Saul, their giant, who they expected to go out and fight the other giant. The hope that they had put in their king, it wasn't there. They saw a giant who wasn't to be overcome. But not David. David says this. Who's going to kill this guy? Who's going to remove this disgrace from our land? And then David says this, 1 Samuel 17, 26. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Nobody else ever asked that question, I guess. Because nobody else saw that from that perspective. What was he saying when he called him an uncircumcised Philistine? It simply meant that, that David understood he had clarity because he loved God and he loved God's law and he tried to follow God's law. He had clarity and he understood that Goliath, as an uncircumcised Philistine, he was outside the covenant of God. He was outside the protection of God. And Goliath and the Philistines were trying to come in to Israel's land that God had established and that God had promised to the Israelites and God had been protecting the Israelites. He understood that and he's like, Who does this guy think he is? And why in the world have not any of you in the army done anything about this? Well, word gets back to King Saul that someone in the army volunteered to finally fight the giant. So Saul's excited, and he has the person summoned. And I want you to imagine when David walked in, and Saul looks, and he's like, really? Some kid? This is, I mean, this is who we're going to place our hope and our trust in? So he's like, get out of here. Who who pulled this joke? So he starts to dismiss David, and David's like, whoa, 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 King Saul, King Saul, wait, before you let me go, I, I need you to know something. I know I'm a shepherd boy with no military experience, but you need to know I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. In fact, one day I, I was watching over my dad's sheep and, and, and a lion came in and he tried to take one of the sheep away and, and I wasn't going to stand for that. So I went and I killed the lion. And then another time I was watching the sheep and, and a bear came in and tried to attack the sheep and tried to drag a sheep away and I wasn't going to stand for that. I was not afraid and I killed that bear. First Samuel chapter 17, verse 36. Your servant, that's David's talking about himself, has killed both the lion and the bear. And then he says this, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Not because I'm a soldier. 
not because I have any military experience, but because, and I'm sure David's thinking, why does no one else see this? Why am I only the only one who understands this? This is insane to me, but it was clarity for David. He said this, because this Philistine giant, he has defied the armies of the living God. And so the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of, paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. You see, for David, there was no confusion. He had clarity, and he saw with clarity that an enemy of God's people was actually an enemy of God. Goliath wasn't just defying the army. Goliath Goliath was defying Almighty God. And David's assumption, which he built his life around, that you might want to consider yourself. David's assumption was that the man or the woman whose hope is in the Lord does not need to fear, even when there is something to fear. And later on, he documented this, what he's talking about. He'd give us his perspective. He gave it to us often in, in the Psalms where he would write. And in Psalm chapter 25, here's how David described it. He said it this way. In you, Lord, my God, I put my what? In you, Lord God, I put my trust. Where's your trust, David? Is it in your talent? Is it in your authority one day as king? Is it in your power? Is it in your ability? Is it in your intellect? Is it in your influence? David says, no, no, no. I've placed my trust in the Lord. David was the man who maintained a perspective that God wants all of us to maintain throughout our life. I've placed my trust in the Lord. It's why around here, one of the phrases we use, especially when we talk about, you know, giving our life to Jesus, we talk about this idea of transferring our trust. Transferring our trust from ourselves to trusting in ourselves and believing we can, you know, manage our life and work our life and lead our life. Transferring that trust to Jesus Christ. And we put our hope and we put our trust in him. And then David said this, Psalm chapter 25, verse 3, no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. And then David writes something that kings generally don't write. They definitely don't embrace. And he says this, Psalm chapter 25, verse 5, he says to God, God, guide me. To which many would say, but but David, you're the king. You don't need somebody else to guide you. You're the guide. You're the leader. No, no, David said, guide me, God, in your truth and teach me. For you are my God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. My hope is in you, God, all day long. I put my trust in you. My hope is in you all day long. Let's finish off this story. Here's David with clear eyes, full heart, confident, and yet in some strange way, humble. He makes his way down into the valley of Allah, confident not of himself, confident in Almighty God, We can only imagine what was happening on both sides as David stepped out to meet Goliath. The Philistine army looked at this young teenage boy with with does not look like a warrior. He does not have any armor. And they must have just chuckled. What is this? Some kind of joke. And the mockery began and broke out among the lines. And the Israelites who are fighting for King Saul, they must surely have thought, King Saul sent a boy to represent us? He's allowing this. We're done for. We have no hope. We're doomed to become servants of the Philistines. 
So Goliath repeats his threats. And then David looks at Goliath and he says this in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 45. It might be something you've heard. If you grew up in church, you've probably heard this phrase. David said to him, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And then he goes on and David's like, hey, I want to prophesy a little bit here. I want to point to the immediate future. Here's what's about to happen in a moment. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 46 to 47. I will strike you down and I will cut off your head. This very day I will give you the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those who gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saved, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. David was the original trash talker, Right? I mean, he could take on any MMA fighter now and all their trash talking. And then you know the story, right? He killed him. David killed the giant, and instantly he became the most popular person in the nation of Israel. David did what Saul failed to do. Because David saw something that King Saul didn't see, that the people didn't see. And so it is with anybody whose hope is in the Lord. If your hope is truly in the Lord, man, it enables you to see clearly. It enables you to act confidently and even walk humbly. Let me say it again. If your hope is truly in the Lord, you will have clarity to see. You will be able to have a confidence, not that comes from self, but comes because God is on your side. And you will be able to walk humbly because you know where your hope is and who you've put your trust in. If your hope is in the Lord and not in yourself, one of the great things that happens, one of the practical things that happens is you just stop giving, trying to control everything. You give up control. You stop trying to control outcomes because you have clarity now and you understand there are so many variables out there that you cannot possibly control and so you've said, I'm done trying to do that. My hope in, is in God. My trust is in God. And so I hope and trust in Him and I'm going to place my trust and I'm going to lean into Him for whatever I'm going through. And that person wakes up every day and declares like David in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. What a powerful, powerful statement that takes us right to the epicenter of this story and the story we're going to look at over the next few weeks together. So I want you to repeat this in your heart each and every day this week. Say it over and over and over. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. In you, Lord God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. So you wake up tomorrow. And that's the first thing you say before you get out of bed. And you head off to work and you got some major circumstances and situations that you're not looking forward to. And you just pray, God, in you, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. And you walk into a situation and when you have tremendous success and, and you're in charge and all eyes are on you and you're the smartest person in the room, but you mutter under your breath what David must have muttered a thousand times. Oh, Lord, my God, I put my trust in you. My hope is in you 
all day long. And in those moments when the world's against you, the giants are coming at you, they're trying to take you down, and you declare, Lord, put my trust in you, my hope is in you all day long. So I'm going to ask you, as we wrap it up, where is your hope? Is it in self? Is it in a relationship? Is it in a, the government? What would it look like for you to transfer your trust to Jesus? What would it look like for you to be able to say, God, I place my hope and trust in you? 